No, they ain't going to get me, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> you're like the you're like the Teflon Don. You're like the Teflon Dad. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Like you did the easiest time in the world. Every single time I saw you in that orange jumpsuit, it looked tailored. I swear to God. <laughs> did you go to a different room? Like I went into the property room. I feel like they were. Oh, Mr. Sobolewski, no, this way. <laughs> yeah. I'm really. Yeah, I'm yeah, you to, you're in a silk jumpsuit. <laughs> you got a pinky ring. You bastard. All right, I'll talk to you later. We're paying people too much. We're hiring too many people. We're not picking the right targets. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast, the only podcast where the host committed the crimes, did the time, and is here to tell you about it. I'm Brian Sobolewski. I'm your host. Today we're going to talk about what it's like to be an ex-con in America, and then I'm going to tell you the story of how my brother almost shot me. The reason I'm taking this slight diversion from what would usually be the Burlington robbery, which was the third robbery in our series of 30 robberies over a five-year period throughout New England, is because this week I had to tell yet another employer that I was an ex-con. And I had to tell him the details of my story when he asked, which is uh, 22 years now out of prison, 22 years of being an ex-con in this country, and I got to tell you that it has been probably one of the more difficult parts of my sentence. So what I would like to explore throughout this podcast is what affected me the most. Was it the crimes that I committed for my dad? Was it the time that I did and my experience there? Or was it the stigma attached to me that molded me most? And this discussion, I believe, warrants some attention because I believe in the past 22 years, it's certainly the longest part of my sentence. And I I don't mean just employers. I mean, I've had to keep this a consideration on every date I've ever been on. At, At what point in exploring a relationship with somebody do I open up and tell you about this I've never had a girlfriend react to it in a bad way I have had some people say you know I can't have an ex-con in my life my you know having a divorce and my ex-husband would freak out and use it against me and I I get it but at what point do I bring this up to you at what point do you bring it up to your family if we ever become close um So it's not just the employment thing. It's everywhere. And if you know me, I probably told you my story within the first five minutes of knowing you. If I thought you were somebody that I could, that I would have in my life for any length of time, it's something that I would probably throw right out there because I wouldn't want to be three months down the line, tell you and have the reaction that I hope to never get. So being an ex-con in America is not an easy thing. There's not a single application that I've ever filled out that I haven't had to answer that question, where I haven't been faced with the idea of having to either lie and getting caught later on for having lied, or bringing it up now and never, never hearing from a potential job again. So like I said, it's on every application. Whether or not an employer checks is up to the employer, and Massachusetts has a very different way than most states of checking. They, you have to fill out a Criminal Offender Records Information Act form, submit it to a government office, and that government office will actually perform the background check, and it's not cheap. 
So of the companies that I've worked for that have said that they were going to do background checks, I have said no and expected for them to find out, and they never did. So I want to go over some of the experiences that I have had as an ex-con. Some of the jobs that I have missed out on because of, um, because of that. This current situation with my current employer... I think in most situations, once I get in the door and once I prove myself and I try to prove myself very quickly because I don't know when you may find out if I didn't tell you up front. And there aren't many times or situations that I did tell you up front, any employer, um, that I had already proven myself and that the employer basically thought, well, geez, you know, I know this guy and I'm not going to judge him based on his past. But my question to you is... Should my past still be a consideration? And is it a consideration? Do you have any friends that are ex-cons and it doesn't matter to you? And should it still affect my ability to perform tasks at a job? I say yes. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, that that shouldn't still be very much a part of my sentence and still very much a part of my punishment, but I'm just telling you that it's been a struggle and that I'd probably be in a very different place right now if I didn't have that. So right out of prison, I went right back to school. I wanted to be a psychologist. I had a very, I had a, a great professor during my associate's degree. I got an associate's degree in substance abuse counseling and I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I had a great instructor for most of that associate's degree, Marcel Duclos. This guy's on the forefront of every new psychological treatment that's out there right now. He literally has helped more people than I think Gandhi in terms of he's had private practices his whole life. He's worked in major facilities just a powerhouse of a guy that basically does his best to try to help people understand and live with or alleviate their pain. And I've always admired him. He's always been the, the dad I never had, I guess. Um, so he, he believed in me. And I wanted to follow in his footsteps. So I wanted to be a psychologist. So I got out of prison and I, went, uh, I had my associate's degree. I reapplied for a bachelor's degree. I went to Salem State College right out of prison it was a condition of my probation that I work and they wouldn't let it go they didn't consider full-time school working so I also had to get a full-time job and the full-time job I chose because it was perfect I could do at night was personal training I'm still a personal trainer why am I still a personal trainer that's a, a, a loaded question because for the first half of my personal training career I hated it I hated it because it's all I could do it's the only job that I could get where my felonies wouldn't affect my my hiring abilities, I guess. Or my ability to get hired. At, at one point during my marriage, my ex-wife called five lawyers in Boston and they all told her the same thing. She didn't necessarily believe that my felonies were as much of a hindrance as I had proclaimed them to be. And the five lawyers all told her the same thing. Of course it is. Absolutely it is. So should it still? Should I still have to tell my employer? The guy that I work for now, 
because of the type of trainer I am and, and the second half of my personal training career, I started to love because I embraced it. I, I said, hey, if this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to be the best at it. Those of you that know me, you know I write books on the subject. Take my job very seriously and I like it a lot, but I'm sick of having to tell people. I'm sick of having to bring up the fact that your opinion of me is about to be marred, you know, by hearing the awful things that I've done. So having to tell this guy was tough for me, not in that I thought he was going to react and be uh, and fire me. I've proven myself to him and I've had to prove myself to everybody. I've had to overprove myself and overcompensate to the point where I, in the hopes that when you found out, that overcompensation would tip in my favor. So in my bachelor's degree at Salem State College, I took a social work class. And in the social work class, you had to do an internship at a nonprofit organization. The nonprofit organization that I chose was the Boys and Girls Club. And I was a newly certified personal trainer. They had just gotten a donation from a gym of old equipment they had upgraded theirs they put it in this big room and they needed somebody to organize the place and get the equipment set up in a way that made sense to the kids and i oh my god i love the idea of doing that and i love the idea of boys and girls club and i i loved it all and i i go for the first day of the internship and they hand me a cory form a criminal offender registry uh registration information i forget i forget the acronym not important, but it's a specific form you got to fill out in Massachusetts so they can do a background check. Do I lie? Or do I just write down my social and my name and roll the dice? Well, that's what I did. I wrote it down. They bring me upstairs to the room where the weights are. It's just it looked amazing to me. I just saw just such a great opportunity. And I started moving some stuff around and 15 minutes into me doing that. They sent two of the biggest men they could find in the facility to come and escort me out of the building and asked me never to come back, ever. It broke my heart, man. It broke my heart and it made me realize that psychology was not going to work for me because there are certain institutions that will always be able to see my record, that will always be able to see the stuff that I've done and will always reject me based on it. That's hospitals. It's, it's literally any institution that receives state funding, and I don't know of many institutions that don't in some way receive some state aid, even if it's in the form of a tax break or, or something like that. You know, they're beholden to the idea that you shouldn't have ex-cons working for you. So that was tough. So what, what do I fall back on now that psychology is not, you know, not a possibility for me? It was personal training. Just before I graduated, I went into Gold's Gym and applied for a assistant manager position, and I gave them a resume. They didn't ask me to fill out an application. And the, I worked for these people for six years, and it was only in my last year of employment that they found out. And again, it's always one of those situations where I think I'm better off keeping my mouth shut and proving myself, and if they should find out along the way, hopefully I've proven myself enough to let allow they they'll let me stay you know the the two guys that ran this gold's gym were great guys i don't think they judged me for it 
ironically enough, I was out of that position a year later. I chose to get out of it, but it was because the conditions upon which they put me under were just not where I wanted to be. So it might have been a move of convenience, but from there I went to Equinox. And Equinox asked me if I had been convicted of a felony in the past seven years. And I think by the time I had got there, it had been about seven years. So I got to say no. So Equinox was not a, de a big deal for me, but it's still like, what if people at work found out? And that's when I started doing stand-up comedy. Um, and I knew that my, my stand-up comedy was going to talk about this and that people from work were going to end up seeing my stand-up comedy and eventually finding out. I published the book at that time, and Equinox was great. Equinox was great to me. I love that company. I actually had a book signing at, at Equinox, and they found out about it, and they liked me enough to say, hey, it doesn't matter to us. I left Equinox. I fell in love. God, did I fall in love. And had to leave. Um, was on unemployment for a little while. Um and applied to be the general manager of this small gym in Kendall Square called Vim Fitness. He had two locations. He had one in Kendall Square and he had one in Davis. I don't know. I'm wrong about that. You can correct me on my Facebook page, Family Jewels Book. It's where you can, guys can leave questions and any comments that you have about the podcast. Um, Family Jewels Book. On Facebook, Family Jewels Podcast on Instagram. So, I start this. This guy is, you know, he's a he's a good guy. You could tell that he just came into some money and he decided he was going to own gyms. They were in a great location. They were near lots of different colleges, um, and he hired me to to run his whole program. I think I had a couple of clients in my first day of 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 working there, and. Uh, a competitor, a guy that that wanted the job but didn't get it, knew about my past, told this guy about it. This guy looked up my comedy on YouTube. I had one YouTube um, video of my comedy. I, I still can't get this, this video off of YouTube. I don't know how I got it on there, and I don't know how to get it off. All my other comedy videos are private, but this one is on. He looked at it, and in there I joked that I'm only in fitness because I'm an ex-con, and he fired me. Came in the next day after seeing that video, and he says, you know, do you got a minute? Sits me down, he's like, it's just not sitting well with me. You even say in your video that you're in fitness because you're an ex-con, and I'm like, dude, that's comedy. That's comedy. <clears throat> I couldn't change his mind. Couldn't change his mind, and, and I'm out. I think I spent two weeks at that job. So what do I do next? Tail between my legs, I'm at a wit's end, and a really good friend of mine lived out on Nantucket says, hey, there's a club out here. They have trainers. Uh, you can come out here for the summer, which is their season. The island goes from 5,000 to 80,000, and uh, packed with rich people. Come to the Westmore. Same problem. I fill out their online application and they ask, have you ever been convicted of a felony? I said, no. I said, no. They said they were on the application that they were doing a background check or I think when I was 
you know, going through the process. They said, we'll let you know when the background check comes back. So here I am thinking, shit, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm not getting this job. Pins and needles for weeks. Because, you know, this was a change for me. I could get out of Boston. I wanted to get out of Boston. That heartbreak really, really, you know, it was a, I needed a geographical change. I got the job. I got the job. And I think the employer found out when I did comedy on the island. And I worked for that employer for, I think I stayed two seasons. I stayed two seasons there and Nantucket wasn't for me. Not an island guy. So with the connections that I made there, and and this is the one I think at this point that, that broke me the most and, and really made me realize that being an ex-con in America, I'd never, because I was never going to, be out of that shadow. Byron Trot is a is a money manager, a wealth manager in Chicago. The guy owns the Wrigley Building. So if you look up the Wrigley Building right now, super uh, popular, famous piece of real estate in Chicago. Beautiful building. This guy owns the whole thing. Not only does he own the building, he doesn't even have his office in that building. He liked the building across the street because it was newer. So on like the 30th floor of that building across the street from the Wrigley building. I mean, this guy this guy could go in the Wrigley building, take off his pants and pee in the corner if he wanted to. It's his. Across the street, he had this whole floor of a big office building and he had a beautiful gym in it. And this guy said that he wanted two trainers to be on staff full time. And anytime his employees wanted to come and do a session with a trainer, they would be there. He paid benefits. He paid expenses. He flew me out there. He Just the whole nine yards of a guy that saw the value of good personal training. I trained him and his family on the island. I get there and I filled out a, a criminal background check form like I have never seen before. It was obviously a private company that was doing it. Prior to, to going out there, I remember talking to a different client, the, the client who's, who is responsible for my move to Aspen, Colorado eventually, and I told her about it. I said, what is the risk of them finding out about this? And she said, listen, if this were my company, my security people would find out this information in two seconds. And I went to the interview in Chicago. I went to meet this guy. I trained his whole staff. The other full-time trainer there loved me. The job was mine. I never heard from them again. Never heard from them again. I didn't even hear a reason why they didn't choose me. It could have been any reason. I trained Mr. Trot again the next year, but I just couldn't ask him because I don't think ultimately it was his decision. I think this was the guy that ran the show and, you know, he paid the people below him to do this kind of stuff and he didn't want to be bothered with it. Might have been disappointed to find out that I wasn't going to be the trainer for him and that was it. I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I'd still be in Chicago right now. I don't know that I ever would have left that job. That is a dream job for a trainer that my past... Um, Screwed up for me. So this client of mine that was helping me with uh, whether or not the background information was going to come back said, hey, there's a club out in 
Snowmass, Colorado, which is right next to Aspen, and they will hire you. Why don't you move out there? I can get you clients. And I did that for five or six years where I wrote a book, blah, blah, blah. They never found out. I think they were another application that said seven years, and I kept it quiet with them. And, and here we are today. I'm still dealing with this issue, still having to tell my employers about my past, even though... I don't know. Is it any of their business? Is it any of your business? Is my past something that should reflect how you feel and judge me today is my question to you guys. Because I don't know. I kind of think yes. I'm not pleading for you to agree with me. I'm, I'm pleading for you to, to help me make a close this chapter up. So that's pretty much what I have on being an ex-con in America. I mean, it's an issue. It's an issue because we jail a lot of people. We, we are very, very tough on crime. We believe that you should be punished to the extent, full extent of the law. And I was. I did my time. Is this a part of the sentence that you feel should, should go this way? I don't know. So now I want to talk about, get back into the, to my story and get back into the robberies. But I want to start with a little story about how my brother almost shot me. And I, it's super relevant because my brother was a type 1 diabetic, as I've said, I think. And being a type 1 diabetic, when my brother's sugar went low, it was almost the same as the warning that you got when the Hulk was about to turn from David Banner into the actual Hulk. And when you go onto Facebook... Family Jewels book um, page, you will see a picture of my brother, and I'm not off in that description. He's huge, and when his insulin went low, you could you you had to learn how to tell because my brother was very coherent, right until a blood sugar of about 20. So every doctor will tell you that if a blood sugar gets down to 20, that that is person is very close to going into a seizure. And that seizure will take him into a coma, and that coma will kill him. The consequence of that, the other side of that, is if you don't keep your sugars on the low side, you don't keep them normal, you run high sugars, and the high sugars is where you go blind as a diabetic, they take off limbs. And that's something that my brother was always scared to death of. I don't blame him. I don't know how he ever lived with type 1 diabetes. It sounds like it sucks. Sounds like they have some alternatives with some pumps and stuff like that. My brother refuses to do it. That being said, my brother had this way of when his blood sugar went low, he'd get super giddy, giggly, schoolgirl-esque giddy. And he'd get violent. It was like it was absolutely like the Hulk if the Hulk were a giggling schoolgirl. And... My brother's favorite thing to do would be to throw you around or punch you or prevent you. Like he almost, it was almost like he morphed into this little kid that was playing a game with you. Like, I don't want to take my sugar because once his sugar went low, you had to bring his sugar up and give him sugar. So you had to keep juice or candy or something. So the diabetic is supposed to know when his sugar is about to go low so they can pop in a Jolly Rancher and let that slow release of sugar into him level off his um, his blood sugar. But Kev liked to ride low. And there, there would be a point where he'd be fine and have a perfectly good conversation with you and he'd drop to the floor in a seizure. It was uncanny. Even Jocelyn Clinic said that they'd never seen anything like it. The do- My dad said, hey, he's had a full 
coherent conversation with me with an insulin of 20. And the doc said, no way, that's, that's, that's impossible. He'd be in a seizure. And the doc checked his sugar. It was 19, and Kev was coherent. Two, two or three minutes later, he was on the floor. So he, ca he can ride those low insulins. The problem with the violence is, especially in the robberies, was we had to watch that. We had to watch if Kevin's insulin was going to go low because I'll tell you that there was a risk of us getting shot. And how do I know that? Because that almost happened to me. So I'll tell you that I have no knowledge of guns. I'm not good with guns. I'm not safe with guns. This is why I wouldn't have one even if I could as an ex-con. But guess what? Uh, the whole country is arming up. You guys are buying guns like crazy, um, and I can't have one. That bums me out. I mean, I at least want an even playing field, but I'm, I just, uh, gun safety, all that stuff, I'm ignorant of it, and I certainly was in this situation. My dad went to somewhere. This was before the robberies. This was, we were at Plymouth State College. Um, I don't know where my brother was. He was probably staying with a girlfriend or something, and I took the opportunity of, my dad's empty condo to go spend a little bit of time by myself. Went down and my dad's car was in the garage and I went into it and I started looking around in it because, I don't know, you never know what you're going to find. And I found his gun, a little twenty-two that was in the leather holster locked in a lockbox in the back of his car. Locked up. Perfectly safe the way he had it. I take it out. I bring it into the kitchen. I take it out of its holster. I see this little thing on the side which I think releases the clip. I click it, the clip falls, hits me in the foot. Full clip, I take it up, I put it on the counter. Here, I got the gun. Instantly turn into James Bond, moving around, thinking I'm a badass. I can tell you that even unloaded, I thought it was the most powerful feeling I've ever had in my life. Power mixed with fear of that power at the same time. I'm holding this gun, and I'm kind of just moving around, and boom! Goes off. I must have squeezed the trigger. I can tell you right now that it's this little tiny stretch of time that I, I don't remember. All I do remember is standing perfectly still. The reverberations of the shot are still in my ears and a flash of one of my neighbor's kids laying dead on the living room floor because the bullet traveled freaked me out. The idea that my brother standing in front of me when that happened and taking a bullet in the head freaked me out on a level that, that to this day, right now, I am having anxiety just over this story because this is the first time I've ever told this story to anybody. It's not in the book. It's not in any of this. I finally gained my composure. Obviously, bullet in the chamber, idiot bry, shouldn't play with guns, and lucky as a son of a... as lucky as you can get. I look around, I find the bullet hole in one of the counters. The bullet hole, I can't find the slug, don't know where it is, can't find it. I searched that kitchen 19 times. I put the clip back in, put it back in its holster, I lock it back in the box, I put it back in the, in the car, and I never want to see the thing again. But I'm burning up. The, the details of this, I had to process this somehow, and I needed to confide in somebody what happened so that they could... They could call me the idiot that I was calling myself in my head, and I picked the wrong person to confide in. My brother came home, like, the next night, 
and we were sitting there and I'm on the couch in the living room and he is in the kitchen right across hallway connecting the kitchen and he's standing there and I say Kev uh, I gotta tell you something happened blah, blah blah I tell him the whole story about the gun and he flips out you idiot the hell is wrong with you you're so stupid what is wrong with you where is the gun I say Kev I'm not telling you where the gun is. Don't worry about where the gun is. That's not the point. That's not what I want to talk to you about. Where's the gun? It's in dad's car. He goes and gets it. I grab a pillow and I start hugging it. Why? I did not have a good feeling and I never wanted to see that gun again. He gets the gun. I'm starting to freak. Kev, put it back. Kev, just put it back. There's no reason for you to have it right now. Please put it back. And he says, shut up. So you know what your problem is? You don't respect guns. You don't respect these things. He hits the little clip on the side. The clip comes shooting up and hits him in the foot. I know this isn't going to end well. I'm about to say, Kev, there's one in the chamber. And I see the Hulk look. His sugar starts to drop. I say, Kev, he turns. Boom! The gun goes off. Went right through the pillow that was next to me. Into the couch, into the wall behind the couch. I don't know, man. It could, it could have, it should have been in me. That bullet should have been in me, and and that is something that throughout the rest of the robberies was a. A huge concern to me and my father, especially going into the Burlington robbery, because the Burlington robbery, we all had to have guns because we knew our target was going to have guns. And that's going to be on the next episode, guys. That's what we're going to talk about. Burlington's going to be, I hope, an awesome episode. I hope you love it. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave any of your comments on the Facebook page. Um... Any Anything that you want to hear more about, any questions that you have about this episode or any of the episodes that I can clarify. I do have some maybe guests lined up as we go. I may have some actual law enforcement people come in here and offer the other side of this. Um, but who knows, as, as this develops and as this becomes uh, more of what it is, uh, I hope you keep liking it. And, and thank you guys for, for listening. To really get in your head, three was enough for me. Five is usually enough for most people to say, hey, I don't like this anymore. And, and while you're there in that five years, you are going to be taught a skill. A skill that would be useful to you and the state at the same time, post-sentence. You finish your five years, you get out and sign a contract with the state for five years and perform that skill for them while they pay you and give you benefits. I'm not... It's a way to rebuild a person's life, maybe build a reperson a credit, give them a skill, have them serve the state that they committed whatever crime in. And at the end of it, if you do everything, your record is expunged and you're not an ex-con anymore. I don't know. That, that sounds like a deal that I would have taken. It sounds like a way to take a population that is now leaving prison and only becoming a larger and larger problem doing something with it. I, it may it may fail miserably. Um, but who knows? So that's my wrap on on 
what it's like being an ex-con in America. Um, I'm doing 